We're going to be reading from Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 16. If you yet don't have a Bible but would like to have one, please raise your hand and the ushers can give you one to have uh, one of our church Bibles to follow through with. So the Bible reading, Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 16, is found on page 828, starting at verse 1, which is below the big number 4 in the second column, under the heading, Unity in the Body of Christ. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. About a, a year ago, some students at a university in the UK tried to stop Australia's most famous feminist, Germaine Greer, from delivering a lecture. There was a, a petition that was going around that had over 3,000 signatures on it. And the reason that they wanted to stop her from speaking was because she doesn't consider post-operative men to be women. When she was asked about the people that were trying to stop her from giving the lecture, she said, what they are saying is that because I don't think surgery will turn a man into a woman, I should not be allowed to speak anywhere. The whole situation caused a, a really fierce debate where you had some people passionately uh, arguing for free speech and you had other people passionately arguing that she should be silenced because they were offended. These kind of situations, we, you've probably noticed, you see them come up more and more in, in the news where people with unpopular views are often blocked from venues, sometimes even blocked from entering the country... And, and they're blocked often by the rage of a united crowd, usually on social media. 
And there's pressure on companies to conform. There's pressure on CEOs and even uni lecturers. And it's becoming more and more common that people who hold opinions that are, are different to the majority find themselves facing a united crowd. What's going on with that? Why are we seeing this more and more? Well, part of what's going on is that there are certain values, certain virtues in our society that most people are united around. But now, more than ever, what's happening is that there's a trend to demand complete unity. Like there's a, there's a unity around the absolute right of the individual to have the freedom to determine self-identity, whatever that may be. So if I, if I want to identify as a footballer, I can. If I want to identify as a ballerina, I can. If I want to identify as gay, I can. If I want to identify as a woman, I can. More and more, our, our society is, is united around this virtue of the right of the individual to fully determine their own identity. And linked to this virtue is another virtue in our society, the virtue of tolerance. We're united around the idea that we're all to tolerate the right of the other person to self-determine their own identity. There are, there are no self-expressions that we won't tolerate unless those self-expressions are intolerant self-expressions. See, this is what happened to Jermaine Greer. Because despite the fact that she's done so much for women in their right to determine their own self-identity, nevertheless, because she's been intolerant of the right of men to self-identify as women, these people who've opposed her have seen it as their duty to be intolerant of her intolerance. And more and more, our society is united on this. Intolerance of intolerance is not only acceptable, but now it's becoming our duty. You must join the rest in being intolerant of intolerance. More than ever, there's this trend to demand complete unity. And it's a very powerful way of creating unity, don't you think? You harness the rage of, of a united group and you scare anyone who would disagree into silence. Apparently, they tell us we're post-truth now, so emotion wins the day over the strength of an argument. And it takes a very brave person to go against the un unified consensus and refuse to conform. And whatever you might think of Jermaine Greer, you have to admit, she's a very brave woman. Our modern Western world, it, it actually highly values unity. But it feels like more and more we're attempting to create unity by mass consensus at the expense of truth and by social shaming and, and force at the expense of love. And it's a completely different way of achieving unity to the way that God achieves unity in His new humanity, the church. Today we see that, that God challenges some of our modern virtues, but He outright rejects this modern way of creating unity. Our unity, as God's new humanity, is to be built and strengthened on both truth and love.
Having seen God's overarching storyline for the first three chapters of Ephesians, over the next three chapters, Paul says this, is this storyline is a truth that shapes how we're to walk through life. The first three tap- chapters is an overarching storyline that is to shape how we walk through life. Have a look at this in Ephesians 4 verse 1. He writes, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have, re- you have received. So if we identify with Jesus, we abandon the virtue of absolute freedom to self-determination. Paul says he's a prisoner of the Lord, which we saw last week, literally and metaphorically. And like him, our great calling is, is not to be true to ourselves and so live free to be whatever we like, Our calling now is to be God's children. And that means walking as God's children. Our calling is so great that we abandon anything, everything else, for the honour of of living a life worthy of our Father. The second half of Ephesians is all about outlining how we do that, how we conform the storyline of our lives to the storyline the Father has for this world. And it's not at all the the kind of oppressive and demeaning storyline that our society thinks it is. We know it's liberating, it's it's freedom to conform our lives to Christ's overarching plan. Today we just see a part of that though. Today we see that bringing our storyline under God's overarching storyline means fighting for unity in the church. But in God's new humanity, we fight for unity with just two weapons, with love and with truth. Today we're going to see three things about unity. We're going to see that we've got to ascertain unity, we've got to maintain our unity, and we've got to attain to our unity. So first, and most importantly, let's look at this first one. We've got to ascertain our unity. In God's new humanity, we don't create our unity. We ascertain it. We just detect that it's already there. See, look at the source of our unity in in verse 4. Paul writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all, the, the source of our unity comes from each and every one of us knowing the same one true God, Father, Son and Spirit. Paul's been explaining this unity over the last three chapters. So if you remember back in chapter 1 verse 10 in the first week, we saw that God's plan is actually for all things to be united under Jesus' rule. And we saw in one twenty-two the next week, that God's plan is for the church to be united to Jesus as the new humanity that Jesus rules over. And the last two weeks in in chapter 2 verse 14 and in chapter 3, we saw that God's plan is for this, this new humanity to be united to each other because of Jesus. We don't create this unity, Jesus' death for us creates it. We have an invisible, unbreakable unity in Jesus. But at this point, you might be thinking, 
Do you really believe that, Stephen? We have an invisible, unbreakable unity? Because you don't have to look very hard to see examples of, of broken unity in churches, do you? Maybe you've even seen it here. How does our disunity fit with an invisible, unbreakable unity in Christ? Well, this brings us to the second thing we see in this part of the letter. Paul says, we've got to maintain our unity. We've got to keep this unity visibly. Have a look at verse 3. Paul writes, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul's calling on us here to maintain what's beyond our power to break. We can't divide the one body of Christ. We can't break the Holy Spirit's unity. But we can live in a way that that contradicts this unity. It's just like some families that that you meet from time to time. You know, the invisible reality is that they're a family. But the visible reality is that they live like strangers or sometimes even like enemies. There's no love, there's no communication, there's only ever fighting. And they're still one family, they're related by blood. Nobody can change that, not even they can change that. But the way that they live contradicts who they are. Well, we could be like that as a church. We could be invisibly united to each other because of the blood of Christ, but visibly living in a way that contradicts that reality. Paul says, if we're living worthy of our calling, that can't be us. We're to put in every effort to maintain visibly the invisible unity of the Spirit. So how are we going at that? I reckon that TNE is a wonderfully united community. Maybe I'm wrong. Come and punch me in the face afterwards if I am. I don't think I'm wrong though. I'm pretty confident no one's going to punch me afterwards. In the two and a half years that I've been here, I've been so thankful to God for the, for the way that we're united around Jesus. There are real differences between us here at TNE, different ideas about baptism different ideas about the roles of men and women in ministry, different views on creation. But none of these have driven us to break unity. And it's not just theological differences here at t either. We have different preferences about service styles, different ideas about music and coffee. Not to mention that we have all sorts of different personality styles here as well. But none of these have caused us to break our unity. Because we all realise that none of these particular differences that I've just highlighted, none of them cancel out that Jesus really is our only Lord and Saviour. And we really have the Holy Spirit in us. But having said how great our unity is, I'm still not completely sure that we're fully living up to this. Because Paul says in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And when things are good, like they are here at the moment, it's easy to be lulled into a false sense of security and not to feel the need to make that much of an effort. And then suddenly something really challenging will come along and it could catch us unaware. They say the the price of peace is eternal vigilance. 
Well, Paul says the price of keeping our unity is making every effort. So we need to ask ourselves, well, how? How do we do that? The attitudes that Paul lists, has already listed in in verse 2, go a long way in helping us maintain this unity. Look back at verse 2. Paul writes, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love. We don't maintain unity by being a united, angry crowd who shout down any non-conformity. It's the complete opposite for us. We're not called to be proud, forceful, impatient and unloving. And imagine if we were like that. Imagine if coming to church was like going to question time in, in Parliament... So even if, if we believe the exact same things, but we were like that, proud, forceful, impatient, unloving, our unity wouldn't stand a chance. But if we make every effort to show complete humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love, our unity stands a good chance of being strong. This is a pretty high calling for us here. And the only way that we've got any chance of of living worthy of this calling is if we keep remembering God's overarching storyline that we've seen already in the first half of Ephesians. When we remember that before, without Jesus, we were lost, we were dead, we were cut off from God, far away, then it becomes a lot easier for us to be completely humble. And when we remember how it is that we've been brought near by Jesus completely humbling Himself to death on the cross in our place, then it becomes easier for us to be gentle and patient and loving with each other. Pride, forcefulness, impatience, lack of love, they don't make sense for us once we conform ourselves to God's overarching picture. And they threaten our unity. And so we need to make sure that we get rid of them in ourselves, in our families, in our marriages, and here in our church as well. Now, this isn't saying, by the way, that unity is maintained by being nice. Sometimes that's what we can think. You know, Paul doesn't write, be completely nice and non-confrontational with each other. He writes to family. And the thing about our families is that we know they're not nice. They're real people. You know, we see them when they wake up in the morning and when they get home after a bad day at work. But we know it's our job to love them anyway. And we know that in a a normal, healthy family, confrontation is actually inevitable and it's often healthy. And Paul writes that with our church family, even in the face of confrontation, even when people are not being nice, especially at those times, in fact, Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. I reckon if if we're finding it easy as a church family, finding it really easy, then perhaps we're not being real enough with each other here. Or perhaps we're just not spending enough time with each other. Because maintaining unity takes effort, Paul says. We see this in what Paul says next. Because we're not called on just to maintain unity... This brings us to our third point, where to attain to our unity, 
we're to grow into unity fully. Look at the goal we're called to work towards in verse 13. He writes, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. See, our our attitude that we saw before, that will help us to maintain the unity that we have in Jesus, and, and it's critical, but we need more than just the right attitude. We need to work towards reaching unity too. And before we, we look at the work that's needed, we've got to first pay attention to the goal of unity. I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about working together between different churches. But the problem was at this conference that we disagreed about some pretty important things about Jesus. Things like, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Stuff like that. Don't worry, it wasn't a Trinity Network conference or anything like that. (laughs) Some people there didn't think that those differences mattered all that much. And at one point, someone got a bit annoyed that people did think they mattered and they said, if we could just see that we all have a genuine love of God, then we could just get on with working together. It sounds great. But did you see the kind of unity that we're to work towards reaching in verse 13? It's unity in the faith and it's unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. We can all hold hands, sing together as long as we like, but unless we're holding hands around the same faith and the same knowledge of the Son of God, then we don't have Christian unity. And in the end, unity Our unity here is not actually the goal. Look at verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. It's being united to Christ, that's the goal. To try and have unity without Christ, that's like a headless body trying to hold together or to try and have unity with, with different views of, of who Jesus is. It's like trying to graft multiple heads on the one body. It's not going to work and it's gross. And yet the reality is that so many attempts to unite Christians do just that. We try to unite around singing or around social action or around just a vague belief in God. But we only have Christian unity when we're united around Jesus, not as we determine Him to be, but as He truly is. What this means for us is that we work towards reaching Christian unity only as we strengthen our connection to Jesus. That's the work we've got to do. How do you strengthen unity? Only as we strengthen our connection to Jesus. Look back at verse 7, where Paul starts to explain how we do that. After talking about all the things that we have in common, all those ones that we have, Paul says here, but to each one of us, grace was given as Christ apportioned it. In the midst of our unity, there's diversity. Within our oneness, there's actually difference. Not difference in our belief in Jesus, but difference in how Jesus gifts us to strengthen that belief in His people. In verse 11, Christ gives all of His church, we read, 
the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. And in verse 12, he gives them so that they will equip his people for works of service or works of ministry, so that the body of Christ may be built up. What this is saying is that every single person in a church is involved in building up the church. It's, it's not just the pastor who does the ministry. The pastor here equips everyone from God's Word so that we can all do the work of ministry. Look at verse 16. From Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As Christ works through you, as you work, you make this church grow. Which means if, if Christ is our Lord and Saviour and TNE is our church, we can't be here simply as consumers. We don't come to church because we feel like it. And we don't not come to church because we don't feel like it. We come as a needed part of the body. You know, if you wake up in the morning and, and, and your knee decides that it's not going to work that day, it's not just causing your leg problems, but, but your back and every part of you is affected. The only person who's happy in the end is your chiropractor. We all play here a God-given role in growing each other. See the way that Paul talks about it? We're interconnected. We need each other. And, and without you being here today, this church is worse off. There are people that you can encourage today in their walk with God that, that no one else can. And we see the, the type of work that we're all called to do to grow the church in verse 15. Paul writes, speaking the truth in love, we will grow. God's way of attaining unity in His new humanity is nothing like the way that our world sometimes tries to achieve unity. God says that both truth and love are critical for us if we're going to attain unity. And we need to hold both together at the same time. Speaking the truth in love, it's so much more than saying nice things to each other. Sometimes it can, it can actually mean saying incredibly difficult things to each other. Some of the, the best days of my life have been speaking the truth in love, encouraging people in their relationship with Jesus. Some of the hardest days of my life have been speaking the truth in love, challenging people about where they're at with their relationship with Jesus. Holding truth together with love, it's not easy. Sometimes we're tempted to just love people, but not say the hard thing. But that's not what God says to us here, will help us reach unity. That will make us soft and vulnerable to things that, that will cause us to drift away from Christ. On the other hand, sometimes we're tempted to just tell people how it is, to set them straight, but not to love them as we do it. And that doesn't help us reach unity either. Speaking truth in love takes time, it takes patience, it takes humility, it takes gentleness and it's only as we keep that first half of Ephesians in mind that we'll be able to do this. But don't miss this, we're all called to do this. Can you see that? We're all called to do this. And in fact, 
you're so much better place to do it than I am. You're so much better place to speak the truth in love. You know, I, I can equip us up here and in other places at other times, but so much more is needed than what I can do. Let me give you just one small example. You know, I can, I can say from up here, we need to read our Bibles if we want to grow in our relationship with Jesus. But when someone says to you, humbly, gently, what are you reading in the Bible at the moment? That has the potential to be far more powerful at building you up than anything I ever say up here. Some people have got the gift of asking that kind of question, you know, what are you reading in the Bible at the moment, in a way that doesn't make you feel guilty and and judged. Some people don't. (laughs) But maybe those people who don't have that gift have a different gift. They have the gift of remembering people's birthday and generosity. And maybe they're gifted to remember the birthday by a gift, something like For the Love of God by Don Carson that helps you read through the Bible. Someone else might have the gift of being able to offer to meet up one-to-one with someone and, and read the Bible with them and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus that way. Other people have got the gift of just talking about what they're reading in the Bible at the moment in a way that inspires you to want to get at it yourself. That's just one tiny example of how we can speak the truth in love. We need Christian brothers and sisters who, who share life with us, who know us like family and who are prepared to honestly and lovingly keep pointing us to Christ. We need those people and we need to be those people. I haven't really talked today much about unity between different churches and that's because this passage is mostly talking about unity within a church. You know, it's great to express unity across different churches but actually when you think about it, that's relatively easy compared to true unity within a church. It's always easy to love people when you don't have to see them all the time. That's why grandparents love their grandchildren, isn't it? (laughs) Pushing unity between churches as some kind of powerful testimony of God's work, that's slightly misguided. Because the world doesn't need more superficial relationships. It doesn't need an impersonal, unified crowd. The church is not a loosely connected organisation occasionally doing events together. The church is former enemies eating around a table, we've seen in Ephesians. It's people praying together and knowing each other's prayer points. It's humility in the face of confrontation. It's people saying sorry and and people forgiving. It's a family, all loving Jesus and helping each other to love Him. That's why we need more churches, not less. The more communities of love that we have like this, then the more powerful impact we'll have in the world. So yes, we should love our fellow Christians in other churches and we should pray for them and we should work together with them where we can. But the true power of unity is actually displayed at 8.30am on a Sunday morning here in the freezing cold gym when people lovingly stack, unstack the chairs that you're sitting on. True unity is displayed at 9.15am when the the welcomers arrive because they're rostered on to welcome people to church. Or at 9.45am when someone turns up to church because they love being with their church family and they want to talk to people. Or at 10am 
when someone sits next to somebody who's sitting alone. Or at 10.20am, when during the, the get-a spot, somebody goes and chats to someone they haven't seen for a while. Or 11.15am, when someone talks about something that was said during the sermon and admits that they really struggle with that and asks the other person how they're going with it. And the true power of unity is displayed at 11.30am when the Sunday school teachers walk back in slightly bedraggled (laughs) but still devoted to seeing kids grow in their love for Christ and then trudge back to clean up in the classrooms afterwards. And 12 noon, when someone prays with someone after church about something that they're finding hard in life and true unity is displayed at 3pm when tea and coffee is being served in our lounge rooms to someone that we've invited around for lunch. And then 3.30, when the youth group leaders come here and set up and pray before they lead our youth, speaking the truth in love to them. Or 6pm, when someone drops off dinner for the youth. Or 8pm, when someone rings someone up to offer to look after their kids that week because of something they'd heard heard them say that morning. And the true power of unity is seen at 10pm when someone remembers to pray for something that someone had mentioned that morning. And that's just Sunday. And it's just a tiny part, isn't it, of what happens as each part of the body does its work to build up others to be like Jesus, out of love. There's nothing else in this world, when you think about it, like this kind of unity. It's an unbreakable unity built on Jesus' love for unlovely people. It's a unity maintained by our love for each other. And it's a unity that that grows as we speak the truth at the same time as we lovingly point people to Jesus. Are you making every effort to keep this unity? Are you working hard to build this unity by, by speaking the truth in love to strengthen other people's relationship with Jesus. We need you. This church needs you. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for what Jesus has done in creating a new humanity that's a place of truth and love perfectly united. Lord, help us to be united to you as we're united to each other and as we encourage each other to grow in our union with Christ. Lord, give us the patience we need. Help us not to be idealists. Help us to be realists who love despite our flaws. Lord, help us to be forever mindful of what it was that Jesus did for us on the cross. The humiliation that He faced. Help us to be inspired by that, to be prepared to humble ourselves And bear with each other, even when it's hard. And Lord, help us to realise that we are interconnected here. That there's a myriad of relationships joining us together. And that people need us. And that if we're not here, we're not able to encourage people to keep living for you like we need to be. Lord, help us as we give to receive and to be encouraged ourselves. Help us all, Lord, to be united in the faith and knowledge of your Son, and to do this for your own glory and for our own benefit, that we might be your true 
healthy church bringing glory to your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.